Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Dr. Kiki's Science Hour, recorded April 7th, 2011, episode 90, First Contact. Hello, welcome to Dr. Kiki's Science Hour here on the Twit Network. Um, we have a fantastic show for you once again. Um, Dr. Kiki's not here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, you don't know how much I am sorry. Uh, technically, she was here. Some of you might already know this, but uh, she was just putting in an appearance. But uh, she's on maternity leave, and I just met her five-week-old little nano uh, life form. And what a beautiful and trusting, sleeping little creature uh, it, it is. So... Um, I, I think there's a chance she might be back next week. So I'll, I'll give you that and we'll see what happens. But um, but this week is what this is all about. And we have a great show, a great topic, a great author. Uh, it's actually his first book. I want to introduce you to Mark Kaufman. He works for the Washington Post. And his new book is First Contact. And the subject is, it's not really UFOs, but it is astrobiology. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Are you you're you're in Washington D.C. Aren't you? Or in the uh, just, general? just outside of Washington in Silver Spring, Maryland. All right. So we're we're talking across the country here, and um, this is your first book, right? Absolutely, it is. I, I've been a, a reporter for a long time, for three decades plus, uh, but this is the first time that I've done a full book. Excellent. Has science been your beat the whole time? Well, absolutely not. Uh, that's one of the strange things. I, I've been a foreign correspondent. I've been a, um, a beat reporter. I've done a lot of different things, covered the FDA. Uh, I started doing science and NASA and space about five, six years ago, and I just fell in love with it. It's uh, probably the best beat that I've ever had, and it quickly turned into a book, and there's no no turning back now. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's out. What's the release? It's just been out a few days, right? Uh, yes, it, it, it came out on Monday. Uh, and From Simon uh, & Schuster. From Simon & Schuster, and so far so good. Uh, it, it, it seems to be well-received by folks, both, uh, very, both professionally knowledgeable and a general audience, and that's exactly what I hope to do, was to take some very, very complicated issues in science and, and scientists and make them accessible, um, and hopefully I've succeeded. Excellent. So I, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what goes on here. Twit is this great network. This week in tech, um, uh, the the followers are very techy and they're out there. I want to let you know that I am at Science Comedian on Twitter, and I'm going to be trying this week to monitor the Twitter stream. If you have mentions of at Science Comedian, I will. Uh, it might get my attention this time. It's hard to follow the chat room. It's over there on the left. Uh, it's, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind, but, but I got Twitter right in front of me and our guest has a great website where you can find out more. That's habitablezones.com. So go check that out. Habitablezones.com and the book first contact scientific breakthroughs in the hunt for life beyond earth is so new that, uh, in addition to the history 
and the background of astrobiology, it takes us right up to what was one of the most uh, interesting and um, uh, well-covered uh, events, right? Just uh, several months ago when we had that NASA press release that covered the the arsenic life form. So right, right. Um, that's pretty fresh. I didn't, I didn't realize that you'd be able to, uh, that must be something you included right before you went to press. Absolutely. That was the last thing that uh, to go in. Uh, I had actually spoken with, with the woman, Felisa uh, Wolf Simon before, and there was, um, there were part, there was some of that reporting was already in the book. Uh, but when her, um, paper came out in the big NASA press conference and then the huge controversy that, that followed, uh, I wanted to get some of that into the book as well, uh, as, as well as, you know, the, the real good, re, uh, scientific results that she had and that were in the science journal. Uh, right. she, she was not able to really tell me the details or in any case, I wasn't able to report them. Um, but in, in, until the paper came out and then it did and yeah, water bombshell. Excellent. Maybe um, we could talk about that for a moment and then we can go back to some a little bit of history of astrobiology. But um, maybe you can tell me something about what her discovery was and and a bit about the controversy that that immediately followed. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, I, well, in, in, in two of the basics of astrobiology is that nobody really knows what life is. There is no working definition of what is life. And so people are always trying to figure that out and to find um, what the various components might be. Um, and another aspect of that is that the belief that the way that you're going to ultimately find what life is on Earth is to find it somewhere else. But it's really, really expensive to go to Mars and get a rock and bring it back and <laughs> Do the work that you need to do, and meteorites do some of that, and and other forms of of of, uh, of research. Uh, but it came uh, a guy named Paul Davies down at uh, Arizona State University, right. who's head of the Beyond Center uh, or Beyond Institute, uh, had come up with this idea of the shadow biosphere a while ago. And the the logic of it is that it is that. There may well be other forms of life here on Earth. And by forms of life, I don't mean something that comes from the same original cell, uh, single cell microbe that, that we all come from, but rather something that was entirely different. And what Felisa did kind of in to, to some extent taking up Paul Davies challenge was to go to Mono Lake, which is a, um, uh, a lake that doesn't drain. So everything gets very concentrated and it has a really high concentration of arsenic, which is, as you know, very toxic to all of us. <laughs> and one of the things that she understood was that the reason that arsenic is toxic is because it's on the uh, ch uh, chart of elements, it's very close to potassium. It is, in fact, almost exactly the same uh, in in terms of how it's how I'm, I'm sorry, not potassium, phosphorus. phosphorus uh, yes. uh, in terms of how it is uh, formed and 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 its shape. Uh, and so, what she did was to examine whether or not in in Mono Lake it was possible to find. Um, creatures, microbes that had substituted or uh, always had um, arsenic in their DNA, in their cell wall, in in their ATP, other things like that. Um, and as a result, if they did, if they had arsenic rather than phosphorus, then that would be an entirely different form of life. That would be something that did not 
uh, evolve from the same thing that you and I and cats and ragweed came from. Right. And I, I want to emphasize a couple of things you just said. One is that just that, that shadow biosphere idea in general, very interesting. Um, and the fact is, especially when it comes to microorganisms, we've barely scratched the surface in terms of identifying life on earth. Like we really, there could easily be is what I think what they're saying is there could easily be life forms unrelated to us here. Um, it's a big planet and microorganisms are really small. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, they, they've identified something like 10%, 5% of the microorganisms on earth. And, and one of the great revolutions uh, that kind of has led to the flowering of, of astrobiology right now is the world of extremophiles, right. which are uh, microbes that live in these insane places, uh, you know, two or three miles down below uh, the surface uh, in South Africa. That's where they've been found in the gold mines of South Africa. But it's probably the same in Petaluma, uh, <laughs> that, that there would be microbes living down there, having absolutely no contact with uh, with the sun and anything that exists as a result of the sun, uh, and the, the same thing with um, in, in in terms of extreme worlds, uh, microbes live in ice in you know three miles down in a glacier. Uh, yeah. They they find microbes living uh, it, 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 around the uh, the ice crystal, and it kind of goes on to uh, really acidic environments and alkaline environments and really uh, heavy exposure to radiation. And so, you know, you put all this together and you think, well, wait a second, you know, if life is that tenacious, then what, you know, why would it not be elsewhere? Why would it not be places beyond Earth? And once it gets started, we know, uh, you know, single cell bacteria, single cell microbes uh, became us. Uh, most of the most of the time on Earth, that there's been life three billion out of the three point eight billion, there wasn't anything bigger than a single single cell. So all of those little cells uh, are remarkable in and of themselves, but they also are potentially remarkable in terms of telling us where we all came from. Yes, this idea. So this the, the idea of the of extremophiles. This is sort of the early history of astrobiology, the recognition that the discovery of these extremophiles and the recognition of, uh, of how prevalent they were. Isn't this, is this it, sort it, of the was, beginnings of astrobiology? It, it, it was one of the important streams going into it. Uh, it actually began probably about 30 years ago, 25 years ago with something called black smokers. These, uh, 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 these hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the Pacific uh, that spew out uh, heat that gets up to 750 degrees. Uh, and when they went down and found some of these things, they found, again, microbial life and actually some uh, much more substantial life uh, living very close to the 750 degrees. Uh, it, Still not at that at that level. I think it was in the 100s or 200s, but still it was extraordinarily hot. And that was when they first started thinking, well, hey, we're not in Kansas anymore. Right. And and I guess the, and the, the, the fundamental idea here is that if um, it's expanding our concept of what life is, when we're looking for life out in the universe, um, we've been looking in this very narrow, we've been really thinking in terms of the narrow range that's habitable to us. And it turns out that the habitable zones are much broader than what we, per, you and I personally can, can withstand. 
And absolutely, yeah. and, and and that really is one of the take-home messages. But also one of the things that I, that's really cool uh, in terms of, in particular, the the microbes that are being found, the extremophiles in in South Africa, in in these deep mines, and again would probably be most places, uh, is the understanding that Mars. Uh, three, four billion years ago, more toward four billion years ago, was a much more habitable place than Earth. It was uh, warm. It was was almost uh, surely wet. And there is good reason to think that it was an environment where life could begin. Mm. Uh, Over time, uh, Mars lost its magnetic field, or most of it, which then resulted in most of its atmosphere disappearing, which then meant the ultraviolet or the various kinds of really dangerous, harmful radiation became very uh, severe, and then it got really cold. And so if there's life on Mars, it's not on on the surface. But if there was life billions of years ago, who knows, maybe it migrated down. Right. under, you know, in the same two, three miles down and is living there happily, you know, making yeah. methane and doing doing all kinds of stuff. Do you know, um, is, is the reason that was Mars warmer and wetter because it had a thicker atmosphere? And so that's what happened is that it lost that atmosphere that that through like the greenhouse effect would have kept it nice and cozy. Absolutely. Yeah. It, and no one really knows why. But one of the things that I found fascinating is that in, in using technology that probably some of your listeners know far better than I, they are able to determine that there still is remnant magnetism in some of the places on Mars where there haven't been uh, big uh, volcanoes or other uh, or big uh, crater hits, stuff like that. So the part that's really, really old, old bars, uh, it has this faint magnetic uh, field still uh, or f- magnetic charge and that is telling them that there once was a full-blown magnetic field which means that there was an atmosphere hmm. was there something I've, I've i'm i'm not clear about this but i've heard that there was some test on one of the early mars landers maybe a viking lander that that it's questionable about whether it it turned up a positive result for life that that there that that it that it wasn't necessarily completely negative. Is there something that's a little controversial from an early <laughs> finding? Absolutely. There's this uh, gentleman, uh, Gilbert Levin, who's uh, Gil Levin, who's who's in the book. Uh, he was the the PI for an experiment called the labeled release uh, in both of the Vikings. This was back, I guess, 1976, and it was a pretty simple experiment that put some uh, radioactively uh, uh, labeled uh, nutrient into the into some soil that was brought into um, in, into the Viking uh, from Mars after it had landed, and it, it it put the nutrient in, and then it tested to see whether or not there was carbon dioxide and other gases that were released. And if they had the same radioactive identity uh, identification, and it came up positive, it came up positive several times, and then the control came up came up negative. So it was it, by the standards uh, that NASA had set for the mission, it actually proved that there was life. Uh, but it kind of made everyone really squeamish, and <laughs> it, it was like I, you know they kind of kept it under wraps for a while, and then they talked about it a little bit. But then uh, there was an uh, an additional exper- there were several experiments, but there was one other 
that was particularly important, uh, that was de to determine if there was organic material, uh, hydrocarbons, complex carbons, so on. And uh, that one, which was the last one to be done, uh, came up negative. And that ended up trumping the other one that came up positive, because if they said, if you don't have organic material, how can you have life? Uh, as it turns out, that test over time, it's been determined was not uh, precise enough. And also, we didn't understand the chemistry involved enough, so that that is almost surely wrong. But there still is controversy about the labeled release. There's still people who say, well, yeah, the other one was wrong that disproved label release, but label release might be wrong too. Ah. Uh, it's so too bad we it's, can't just, you know, call and see if they pick up or screen their calls. <laughs> it goes to voicemail. Something absolutely. really clear cut. <laughs> absolutely. But but that's the thing that's so, you know, to me as a relative newcomer to science and and as a real enthusiast of the scientists that I've, I've, I've worked with is everything is open. You know, everything is being tested again and again and again. And, and you know, you, you throw everything you got at it, like what happened with Felisa Wolf-Simon with the Mono Lake. Uh, and it takes years to determine whether or not you're right. And then if you are, then, then a consensus grows and you got something really substantial. Right. So, um, again, with, uh, there's another event that I remember hearing about when I first was looking into the idea of extremophiles, that there was a story about um, a microbe that was discovered, I think, on a camera left by one of the Apollo missions on the moon. Yes. Do you know this? Is this is this one of the early? Was like this might have been like early on with our understanding of extremophiles, even. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was something that was brought to the moon by us. Right. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't there. <laughs> right. Uh, but it survived. It made it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it literally, and, it's like something that was exposed to vacuum. It was sitting out on the moon on a camera. Um, yeah, no, you're, it, it's it's totally nuts, but it it survived, and you know it was exposed to radiation, intense radiation on on the way, yeah. and and actually this this points to and uh, goes to a really to me fascinating kind of central point, which is let's think back for a while. You know, four billion years ago, Mars was wet and and, um, and warm. Oh, hold on one second. You're, a little of that was garbled. Um, I know you're on a wireless. Uh, could you just say that last sentence again? Okay. Uh, let's go back again four billion years or so. Uh, Mars was uh, wet and warm. Uh, the Earth was not. It was being bombarded by uh, meteorites all the time. It was just like a real hellish environment. It was not the place where life could go, uh, could, could begin. Uh, and yet, somewhere between 4 billion and 3.8 billion years ago, life began on Earth. And there's this whole school of thought that says, you know, the conditions on Earth were really not very uh, habitable, were, were not very attractive. And so maybe there were microbes that uh, got blasted off of Mars that traveled like that one going to the moon and landed here on Earth. And that's how that's how life began here. So we're all Martians. Yeah. So, well, on that topic, so I do know that. There are some rocks that we've found that are from Mars. And even, even as unbelievable as that sounds and what it requires is, is I guess it's generally thought that maybe a meteorite or comet slams into Mars, 
with enough force that some Martian material gets blasted into space. Exactly, yes. And then it's it's orbiting in the solar system uh, for millions or even billions of years before it intersects the Earth's orbit. And then there's a there's an interesting phenomenon. I wonder if you discuss this in your book that's that's um about is it at the Arctic or the Antarctic that we find an a, a really rich source of meteorites? Antarctic. It's the uh, Antarctic. And 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 some of it is just because that's where they can be easily found. You know, right? They're, they're easily they, seen and 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 they're and and they're preserved and there aren't people down there. Uh, I, I think that there also are issues with. Uh, where, in terms of the magnetic fields, the, uh, the rocks would be coming in and would be attracted. But yeah, it, it's a. It's, there are some fascinating stories that have come of it. And when we talk about the beginnings of kind of modern astrobiology as a as a really hard science, it kind of goes back to 1995 when uh, NASA uh, saw right. a couple NASA scientists uh, put out this uh, paper in Science, and there was a big. NASA uh, headquarters press conference, and they said, hey, you know, we found a meteorite from Mars, clearly from Mars, and that it had six biosignatures, none of which in and of themselves tell you that there was life. But when you put it together, then the, the you have a pretty high uh, likelihood that there was something that was living in there. Uh, it, it, that's another one of those stories where it was a huge, huge uh, kind of round the world uh, reaction that was very positive. That, that, that like this is amazing. We've we found life on Mars, uh, or that had been on Mars. Uh, but then other scientists began to push back, and uh, over the years, consensus again evolved against this particular yeah. finding. Um, David McKay down at uh, NASA, uh, uh, the Johnson Space Center in, in Houston, um, was the lead scientist on it, and he's still working on it. Uh, and uh, now 15 years later, he's been working on other Mars meteorites, and he says that he is more convinced than ever that he was right. And not only with that initial one, but with later ones, he says that he's now found much larger microfossils, you know, little remnants right. of, um, of of microbes uh, and it, it, fascinating issue. I mean, I, I was at a conference where he and this Gil Levin uh, of, of Viking fame and and another uh, astrobiologist who uh, says that he is finding microbes, uh, microfossils in other uh, meteorites, they, they were there to talk about their findings. Uh, it was a big conference and, you know, it was like a handful of people showed up. These were, these were people who used to be uh, or who once were uh, speaking in every, you know, the world was waiting for what they had to say. <laughs> uh, no more. Uh, and yet maybe they're still right. You know, let me. We are speaking with Mark Kaufman, the author of First Contact. It's a new book that uh, is about astrobiology, and uh, you can uh, you can contribute if you're listening through uh, through uh, at Science Comedian, my Twitter name. If you uh, if you tweet and include at Science Comedian, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll try to address your concerns. I did see in the chat room a question about because the one thing we are uh, whether or not those Martian meteorites represent anything that actually contains a life form uh is there there was a question in the chat room about um how we know for sure that they are from mars because i think that's pretty much not disputed and i think there's a combination of reasons 
um, that have to do with what is it that like the relative numbers of isotopes or or is there actually bits of Martian air in in bubbles yes. inside? It, it, it's it's precisely that kind yeah. of thing, and 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 there are a number of other uh, attributes too. But yet, yeah, it has to do with what what from the Martian atmosphere is visible or is is definable. And um, I, I'm sure that there are some other characteristics yeah. in terms of how in terms of how you find the age for it. Yeah. Uh, but but this is there, there's a lot of controversy about whether or not there is earthly terrestrial contamination right in the in in these meteorites if even though they land in antarctica and are frozen you know uh, wouldn't there still be microbial life right. that would uh, make its way into it and the and and that is very much of a hotly debated issue but uh but whether or not it came from mars that they could determine right. yeah i think there are indications that of of the initial impact that would have happened at Mars. Uh, that that leaves some some signatures, and then the time it spends in space. Because I've seen this where they have a pretty good idea of how much time it spent in or in uh, before it it made reentry on on Earth. I guess it's not reentry if it's coming for the first time. But uh, <laughs> no, you're right. There's the thermal shock of, yeah. of, of of how it initially got dislodged is something that they can that, that they analyze and they could understand that that's. That's what happened, that this rock didn't come from anything other than that. Yeah. Well, um, so I know that you, you, you right off the bat, page one of your book, I, I have to say I haven't read a lot. So page one was 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 right there as where I chose to begin. Um, uh, you make a pretty strong statement that you believe that we're living in a very exciting time in that uh, – you state pretty unequivocally that you think that we're going to find indications, undisputed indications of life out there in our lifetime. You bet. And uh, let me give you just a little bit of background. Um, I had not thought all that much about this issue. I was, uh, I had, I was. This was still in my relatively early days covering space and NASA for the Post, and I went up to a, um, a journalistic boot camp at MIT. And there was a woman there who uh, was a really dynamic young uh, professor. Her name is Sarah Seeger, and she was one of the people who came in to speak to us. She's an expert in exoplanets, the planets beyond our solar system. And she was the one who said initially uh, in her lifetime, she was 100 percent sure that there was going to be a determination that there was life uh, somewhere beyond Earth. And. Uh, I thought, well, wait a second, this is kind of remarkable. Here we are, kind of the citadel of science uh, in America, and this uh, obviously well-respected uh, physicist and, 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 and professor was saying that that was the case. Yeah. And so I, I kind of took it from there and got to know her and got to spoke a lot with her. Uh, and it, it, if you would just give me a second, uh, let, let me let me paint the pictures to why I think that's the case uh, th that we'll find life there. There are uh, four really significant uh, streams coming into this. The first is the extremophiles that we described before: how life can live can exist in really really complicated. Uh, inhospitable ways, uh, places. The 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 second main uh, kind of revolution has been in the understanding of 
exoplanets of the planets that uh, are not in our solar system. And we now have identified, you know, somewhere between 500 and 1,000. Uh, but recently, um, Jeff Marcy, who's one of the great planet hunters uh, of the day, was, uh, was on a uh, press call and he was talking about or a press a teleconference he was talking about it in one of his papers uh an estimate that there were billions as in you know b billions of exoplanets living that that are in habitable zones in just the milky way wow uh, and <laughs> you know put that into the context of you know the milky way there are uh, i don't know uh, two one two hundred billion stars and then there are one or two hundred billion galaxies. Uh, and, you know, the numbers of potential places where there could be life is suddenly enormous. Uh, you have, you know, just billions in, in this one galaxy. So you have, life is very tenacious and, and could live in, you know, can exist in really inhospitable places. You have planets everywhere, uh, and, and many of them in habitable zones. And then what they also have determined that that in the nebula, in you know, in space generally, um, uh, all the components of life are there. The chemical components. There also are complex carbons, but there's nitrogen, there's oxygen, there's hydrogen, and all of that is falling on planets, just like it fell on Earth. Right. Um, and so the makings are all there. Uh, you have. Lots and lots of places where things could land. You have this extreme, this ability to live in stream environments. And then the fourth thing is, uh, on Mars, it's becoming more and more credible to think that, that there once was life there. And one of the main reasons is uh, the discovery or the announcement about a year ago of the discovery of methane uh, coming out of we presume cracks in the surface uh, and the methane gas comes out at particular times and in particular places. So it's, it's, it, it's not just a, a global phenomenon. It's, it's something is happening there um, on earth. 90% of methane comes from organic, you know, from, from life, from biology. Well, what's uh, the non, how, where does it, it's also made non-biologically. Yes, uh, they're, they're one of the main uh, sources is there's a mineral called olivine uh, and serpentine also, which is actually there's a lot of it in California. Uh, and as it interacts with water and with heat, uh, it can it's known to be able to form methane. And then also when planets are in their early phases, they there's a lot of methane inside and they kind of degas over time. And the question is, is this still a remnant of of that degassing, right. they don't they don't know yet uh, what the source of the methane is. But um, you know, when you put two and two together, uh, it's not unreasonable to think uh, that that there's a chance that this is some kind of methanogen, a mi microbe that lives in and produces methane. It's deep down in the surface, uh, below the surface, and there it is on Mars. Um, and then putting all this together, you have. The logic that says this, if you have life, the genesis of life on one planet here, then, you know, that's really wonderful, but we don't understand how and why it happened. And it is kind of a big question mark. If there's life on Mars, even if it's just like some, you know, microbes living a couple miles down, and it turns out that they have a different kind of, uh, of, of genetic 
makeup uh, than anything on Earth, then you potentially have a second genesis. And if you have two, if you have life starting twice in one kind of chump change uh, uh, solar system, there's absolutely no reason to think that it's not common. Right. That the same thing wouldn't be happening many, many, many other places. So that's why, you know, a, a microbe on Mars could be the key to uh, to understanding or to accepting the fact that life is a commonplace elsewhere. Yeah. We have a, a, a question came up in the chat room asking about the Drake equation. And that seems to have been around for quite a while now. And the, the actual question was if 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 because of our knowledge over the past couple decades have I mean, what do you think of the Drake equation in general? Does it even mean anything at all? And if there's any information that we now have that's made us change our our perception of some of the factors in it or some of the variables. Well, 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 first is uh, in terms of what kind of what it does or what it is. It it is it's it's done by Frank Drake, uh, the, the first SETI observer, and he's looking for a different thing. He's looking for the uh, intelligent life right. that would be sending messages or, you know, either right. in, in light or sound. Not only uh, intelligent, but um, technological. I've heard this pointed out that that it's not only intelligent life that, that SETI would need to find, but it's it's intelligent life with that's technological that uses radio waves. Absolutely. Even so subsets of subsets of intelligent life. And, and, you know, when you, when you, again, kind of step back and think about it, you know, we had three billion years of single cell microbes. Right. We've been, we've been a technological society for what, a hundred years, you know, 150 years. Uh, so it, it, in any case, the, uh, the Drake equation is a way of trying to using the, uh, the knowledge that we have of saying, how likely is it that, uh, that there will be other technologically advanced uh, societies, uh, civilizations, and it, it, there are there's a lot of uh, of uh, how to describe it. Uh, some people find that there's a lot of good things of, of significance to Drake equation. Some people think it's like off the wall. Uh, but the one of the one of the fat one of the components of the Drake equation is how many planets are there beyond Earth, right? So that's and something so, that we do have knowledge of that we didn't have 20 years ago. Exactly. So you could put in, you know, some really big numbers and suddenly the Drake equation has a whole new meaning. So uh, it, it, it is something that's still alive and well. And and actually SETI is it's if we could talk about that. for Yeah, a second, sure. Um, uh, it, it, just north of you guys, uh, it, there is a big array of radio telescopes at Hat Creek, uh, which is up by... I'm blocking on the name of the the town nearby, uh, but, it, but it's in the shadow of Mount Larson and uh, Lassen, rather, and also of Shasta, uh, right. and and they have now uh, about forty uh, arrays uh, or, or forty radio telescopes dishes, and they hope someday to have five hundred. And it's a joint, it's a collaboration between. Uh, SETI and University of California, Berkeley. <laughs> it's the biggest radio um, telescope in the world, I think. Uh, and so now they're listening all the time uh, for uh, for messages or sounds or whatever coming from um, from afar. And this is really kind of a revolution in terms of SETI because they're now really being embraced as a not insignificant part of the whole astrobiology 
effort and that they are a science-based organization doing science-based stuff. Yeah, it's I mean, what do you make of the fact that it seems like they've been listening for decades now and I know the universe is vast, um, but I guess I don't have a feel for how narrow a band when they're when they're searching, how narrow the band they're searching is so that uh, you just like to think that if there is plenty of technological life out there, that wouldn't we have just caught a glimpse of one beacon or something. Yeah, and, and that's a reasonable question and a reasonable thought, and it was one that certainly I had. Uh, I was talking with Jill Tarter, who is, uh, you know, the Jodie Foster character, yes. kind of. Uh, kind not of. really her, but, uh, but w- what she says is that uh, the, the number of, of, of potential sites for intelligent life uh, th- that have been observed is equivalent to one cup of the ocean right one cup of water compared to the ocean yes yes but i guess what i was thinking is that it just seems like when they're looking are they going star by star it seems like a beam from a star that that anything coming like an entire galaxy uh covers such a small now i don't know if we'd be able to even detect a signal from a galaxy the nearest galaxy being over two million light years away but it doesn't it seems like you'd be able to point your scope at that entire galaxy and that would cover a hundred or two hundred billion stars uh if any of them were broadcasting well but but you also i mean this is where things get really complicated because you don't really even know you know what frequency right. be broadcasting in uh you know uh how, so there are so many variables and then of course you have to have uh you have to be intersecting with that civilization at a time when it is capable rather yeah. than you know where we were 300 years ago or whatever else or yeah it's or, time you know, and space yeah that are and, vast and, and and when again you look at the number of stars, it's uh, ten to the twenty third. You know, you put a ten and you put twenty three after it, and that's you know what they think today. And then like tomorrow, it'll probably be 20, ten to the twenty fourth. That's a lot, a lot of places. So uh, it, it, the vastness of the universe and of uh, what's out there, the number of stars is it was one of the things that I kind of as a novice at this did not understand, yeah. and and have just been really blown away by that. Uh, the the absolute insignificance of of our little star and our little solar system and our little planet. And by insignificance, I don't mean that our lives are insignificant, but just that it is it is just a tiny speck. And so uh, that's the perspective that I try to then bring to both writing about it and thinking about the world now is that uh, it's big. Yeah. <laughs> now, some people would say, why are we even wasting our time looking for microbes and radio signals when uh, at Area 51, they have crashed saucers <laughs> and samples of aliens? What's Why don't we just start there? Uh, yeah, well, uh, but that it was true. I mean, you know, uh, it, that was that was always kind of that's been the problem of astrobiology kind of from the beginning. Uh, and they they've worked so hard to be a credible science uh because there was this kind of giggle factor and you know ufos and all that uh and and they have moved enormously from that they th- there is now some of the best cutting edge science on earth 
is in the field of astrobiology. Uh, people at NASA were telling me that more people uh, apply for certain kinds of really high-end NSF and NASA uh, grants uh, in astrobiological fields than in any other field. Hmm. Uh, so, so that was the you know it came out of the world of UFOs and the like, uh, but it's it's very very different, and and that's one of the things that I, I try to uh, discuss some in the book and and certainly feel uh, strongly about, which is we we do live in this remarkable time. I mean, for forever that you know ever since there have been humans. People have been thinking, well, gee, what else is out there? You know, once they understood that there were stars and that later that there might be planets and so on. Uh, this goes back to the Greeks and for sure, because they wrote about it and, and probably before then. And then uh, there have been like, you know, really heated disputes. And uh, for there was one point where the, uh, the Catholic Church put a guy, Giordano Bruno, to right. death. <laughs> in, in, in part because he was believing that there were uh, um, uh, a, a multiple of worlds uh, and multiplicity of worlds. And so uh, it, this is something that has been part of, of human nature and, and of human uh, thinking for forever. And, and we've come up with uh, angels in heaven and we've come up with angry gods and we've come up with uh, jinns and all kinds of stuff. And you, with UFOs and, you know, E.T. and crazy Martians and stuff like that. Um, but now we're in a position to actually, for the first time in all of human history, to find something that's really truly life yeah. instead of kind of make-believe. Excellent. My guest is Mark Kaufman. He's the author of First Contact, Scientific Breakthroughs in the Hunt for Life Beyond Earth. And uh, his website is habitablezones.com. And uh, he's not on Twitter, but I am at Science Comedian. Um, if you'd like to, uh, we still have a few more minutes if you want to send in a question or comment. Um, what about that? That um, What are the implications going to be? I, I think you touch on this in your book. Uh, from people with a religious perspective and for, for those that don't have a religious perspective, what's going to happen if we find undisputed, uh, if such a thing is possible in science, if we find yes. really sig- uh, serious proof that there is life either in our solar system or around some other star? What if it's intelligent life? What would the implications yeah, well, be? Yeah, uh, uh, it, the, it seems to me that the implications... For for many faiths would not be problematic, you know. In certainly the Eastern religions, they that it's kind of an accepted part of what they think the world is like. Uh, and uh, Islam talks a lot about other worlds, and, and so does so do the Mormons. Uh, but for mainstream Christianity, I think that it could be a problem, and uh, a, a lot of other people agree with that. Although. Uh, the, the Catholic Church a couple of years ago said, hey, if we find life elsewhere, then, you know, those are brother extraterrestrials and we're all in this together and, 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 and things are cool. But here's, here's the issue. And this is something, again, that's been debated going back centuries is the crux of Christianity is that uh, Jesus Christ was the uh, son of God and he was brought down to earth uh, to uh, expunge the original sin of Adam and Eve and to save mankind. And he suffered and died uh, for that and then was resurrected and people could be uh, then absolved of that original sin. Well, that's a very, very earth-centric phenomenon. It's 
that happened here on Earth to save Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. It didn't. Ha it didn't happen. You know, six hundred uh, billion light year or million light years away on some other planet. It's 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 explicitly on Earth. So, it, and this is something that has been discussed, uh, you know, in religious circles of, well, you know, well, what would happen if there was intelligent life elsewhere? Could there be multiple, uh, multiple incarnations of, of a Jesus or, uh, and, you know, can he, could he have gone to other, uh, universes, I mean, uh, galaxies and, and planets and, uh, in a different it, form or something? It, <laughs> or, or in the same form, who knows, you know. Uh, but it, it, for a long time, that was considered heresy in, in the Catholic Church. Uh, but when, when after I wrote a story about some of this, and Stephen Colbert had uh, Brother Guy Consolmagno, a, uh, a Jesuit uh, astronomer, uh, on his show, and uh, Brother Guy said, hey, it's not a problem. Uh, right. You know, and, and Colbert... I think, interestingly and, and hilariously, kind of skewer that, say, well, wait a second, it is a problem because of all the things that have been said before. Um, and, but if you have, if you're interested, go take a take, go take a look at that. It's it's kind of uh, it's kind of cool. But it, it, I do believe that um, for for most people, um, it would be kind of an eye opening, you know, mind blowing moment when. Uh, when there would be a clear determination that there was life. I mean, in some ways, it would be coming full circle of what Copernicus did back, you know, centuries ago, saying that Earth was not the center of the universe. Uh, we now know, again, it's just some insignificant uh, planet in an insignificant uh, solar system. But we still have the only place in the, in the galaxies that we know where there's life is here. If it's not that, if there are others too, then it's like that whole that whole taking humans and Earth out of the center would take another major, major step forward. Yeah, it sure would. And uh, I mean, but maybe you know, the book that we got is just our local edition, and you don't need to know. You know, it's a need to know basis. You, we didn't want to bother you with all the information that you couldn't. Con it's beyond your comprehension, frankly. Anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and and here, let me tell you about also something that that's kind of the other side of the coin of of what is coming out of astrobiology. Um, uh, it, 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 Again, astrobiology goes all the way from microbiology to cosmology and just about every science in between. Uh, one of the things that that um, that theoretical physicists and cosmologists and others have determined is that the universe, our universe, is fine-tuned in a way that right. uh, is is kind of mind-boggling. You know, if if the ratio between the mass of a proton and a neutron wasn't uh, the slight, you know, insignificant difference that it is, then there could be no chemistry. Right. Uh, if, if the relation between mass and gravity was just slightly different, I mean, we're not talking about like, you know, orders of magnitude. We're just talking about like little teeny tiny differences. Uh, there could be stars would never come together. Right. Uh, and and uh, the way that carbon is created in stars is it's it's just kind of insanely precise. You need the element beryllium there to be uh, to be to be uh, vibrating at a particular frequency, uh, and that that is essential to the creation of carbon. Hmm. And so the you know th there's this whole school of thought that says, well, wait a second, you know, 
how is it that our universe is so incredibly finely tuned? Yeah. Is it just is it just coincidence? And you think it, that's impossible? Is it a creator? It's not scientific, and that's why just you know most of the big thinkers in this field now believe in multiverses. That there are an infinite number of universes. Because if there's have- only one universe, then you have a lot of explaining to do to explain <laughs> why that, that. But if there are an infinite number of universes, then every possible combination of those basic um, uh, 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 the variables that would exist. Exactly. And, you know, we just happen to be the lucky ones living right. in the place where everything came together just right. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating kind of uh, thought experiment. Uh, unfortunately, it's not really something that can ever be proved or disproved or certainly can't be proved or disproved now. So you kind of are left then with these three choices. None of them are any good of how how it was that the universe got so finely tuned. Yeah. Coincidence, creator. Or multiverse, right. yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the, in the chat room, uh, this idea came up that 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 the universe that we know what the universe what we think of as the universe is a simulation. Which then that's a combination of it could be a god and technology. We already create video games that are getting more and more realistic. It's conceivable that in not too many decades we should be able to create uh, even more realistic simulations. And I like to think of the simulation idea in this way, too. That would explain things like, you know how we get down to uh, uncertainty on the quantum level? Mm -hmm. Well, my explanation for that is that that's just as detailed as they made the simulation. The reason it's great there is there really isn't anything there. Um, of course, we came up with an equation to describe it, but basically it's just that they didn't think we'd get this far. So, so all the areas that we don't know are just areas that it was no need to render it with that much detail because there's no way these creatures would ever poke that deeply into it. Yeah, I mean, I, that's my it's theory. Kind of, you know, it, 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 I think it makes sense. I'll buy it. Uh, uh, along somewhat similar lines, uh, th- there's there's one other school of thought about uh, in, in cosmology, or actually there are many, but one that I wrote about, which has to do with uh, kind of the natural selection uh, of universes right. or of, of this parts is of universes from Lee Smolin. Yeah, I don't uh, know a and, lot about this. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, he, he it also involves multiverses, but it, he he does talk about how there can that in our universe, for instance, uh, there would be different parts of the universe that evolved in different ways, and the ones that succeeded uh, are the ones that became ours, you know, and us. So, in other words, there was the same kind of natural selection, you know, survival of the fittest in terms of the laws of physics. Uh, not just the laws right. of biology, uh, and and that that that's how things came to be as they are. Right. But but, but one of the parts, it would, to me, mind-bogglingly, kind of it, it's a beautiful idea, somewhat like what you described about quantum, <laughs> uh, the quantum level. He says, "What's a big bang? The big bang is the other end of a black hole. That uh, you know, matter, information, everything." goes into a black hole. We don't know what happens to it, but and we certainly don't know how the Big Bang began. And he posits, obviously not going to prove it, that the Big Bangs are just the other end of a black hole. It's matter and all that stuff coming out suddenly from that 
it, it, it's not even a void. It's more than a void. It's a you know, it's a collector of, of matter. So that is, astrobiology goes all the way from you know those little microbes to uh, to this. Yeah, it's a great topic, and uh, yeah, do, are you already thinking in terms of what are you going to write about next? Are you going to are you are you still? Is there more to say about astrobiology, or do you, do you have another topic in mind to uh, to well, springboard from this? I do have another topic in mind, and it, it's it's related, but uh, but but different. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure that I should say it. Okay, but, yeah, I can but understand I that. But 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 I will anyway. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> uh, the it, it, it's something that's just going through my mind and probably through the mind of others as well. Um, the world of of space capitalism of, of uh-huh. private space, you know, the Elon Musk's, yes. and Jeff Bezos, and uh, and the Bigelows of the world, uh, Virgin Galactic. Yeah, they're kind of the future. Uh, I believe. They're, I hope so. Yeah, we're counting on it at this point. They're, they're the future of space, and it's a fascinating group of people. You know, they're incredible uh, uh, kind of coyotes in, uh-huh. in in doing this, uh, and 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 I'd like to kind of get to know them better and and bring more of that to the public. Uh, a lot of people say to me, "Well, you know, it's it's not really happening, is it?" And I said, "Well, actually, yes. I mean, Elon Musk really does have a yeah. private company, and he, you know, he sent a, um, a capsule around the globe and it landed. And he could then get it back. I mean, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I've I have visited the SpaceX facilities, which are are in L, the ones in LA, their uh, main location. It's pretty amazing. It's this hangar that I, I think it used to belong to Hughes or one of the aircraft companies, but it's basically one large facility. It's this science fiction dream of of like building a rocket in your backyard. They do almost all the construction in-house and almost starting from scratch, a brand new design, new rocket. And they've been very, they very quickly became successful. And they're, they just announced this past week uh, they made the Falcon 1 and then the Falcon 9, which I believe has nine of the same rockets that the Falcon 1 has. And now they're moving forward uh, with this design for an even heavier, the Falcon Heavy, they're calling it, uh, yeah. to be the, the next generation uh, capable of lifting, uh, I think, hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a guy who wants to go to Mars. I mean, yeah. that's, that's why that's why he started SpaceX. Uh, I, I had the good fortune to be to go there also yeah. at Hawthorne. And it is, it's like just uh, an incredible playground, uh, not playground. I mean, these are like really, really sophisticated scientists. But you see, you see the, the engine being built over yeah. here and, you know, the capsule over there. And uh, it's, it's insane. It is insane. So I do see that one of you, you've got some very nice blurbs on the on the back of your book jacket. And one is from Elon Musk. Um, so uh, uh, CEO of SpaceX and Tesla Motors. The guy yeah, set out to make, yeah. The guy set out to make some changes to the benefit of human humanity, and he's he's certainly on the right track. Uh, just if I could quickly, I mean, uh, I've gotten to know him a little bit, and I have a lot of respect for the guy. Yeah. I think he's fascinating. Uh, and it's interesting how in Washington, uh, where you know you have all these senators and congressmen and women who uh, who have NASA facilities in their districts, and and this is. You know, it goes across the political spectrum, but it's uh, most a lot of them are in the South, so it, it tends to be the so-called budget uh, hawks and and deficit hawks. Uh, but man, they hate Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, they they want to build 
their big stuff down in Alabama or you know in in Texas and wherever else, and they don't want they don't want to have that kind of competition. Right. Uh, I did a whole bunch of stories about that. I mean, ultimately, um, the Obama plan, which included help for guys like Musk, uh, passed to some extent. But who knows what will happen now, now that they're going to shut down the whole government. Yeah. Well, we're about out of time. I want to thank you. This has been really fun and inspirational and exciting. And uh, um, I want to repeat that Mark Kaufman, you can keep up with his current writings at The Washington Post. And through his website, which is HabitableZones.com. And uh, the book is currently available already. First Contact, uh, you know, Amazon and other places. Your local bookstore, uh, while they still exist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thank you so much for having me. This has really been fascinating. And you've had very good questions. Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. And thank you uh, for participating in, in the chat room. And I think, like I said, Kiki may, in fact, be back next week. If not, she'll she'll have another guest host. And thank you for uh, for spending some time with us. See you next time. 